I think thinking about evolution of human nutrition, I would start from a nutritional perspective <coughs> and um, making clear the distinction between food and nutrition. Um, the nutrition is very much uh, a, a functionalist uh, kind of enterprise. We're interested in how um, the body is built, maintained, protected, um, so how growth happens, how things are maintained and how the body is protected for against, for example, against disease and against infection and so on. <coughs> and we've had a glimpse of this in the in the in the in the previous terms. In the previous term. <coughs> this is a general typology that works for uh, for all <coughs> mammalian species. Uh, macronutrients, micronutrients, there's that distinction. And mostly when we think about people getting enough food to eat the general food security discourse <coughs> is about getting enough dietary energy. It's about getting enough calories. Because we now know that in most places in the world, if people can get enough calories with the diet they habitually use, then they should be able to get enough protein as well. So in terms of thinking, you know, what is human diet limited by, usually it's in relation to energy. Of course, there are places in the world where people do not get enough protein because of the sheer poverty of the diet that they have. And we'll come on to that um, in, a, in a subsequent lecture. <coughs> Micronutrients, we divide up into vitamins and minerals. Uh, um, vitamins are not straightforwardly um, uh, about, it's not straightforwardly about deficiencies, but also <coughs> in respect of uh, uh, resistance to infection. Um, uh, minerals, major ones, include things like iron, things like calcium. And when thinking about how people make do with the diets they have and the nutrition they get from it, to what extent do they need to accommodate to those diets? For example, in a land of plenty, one can consume huge amounts of dietary energy, but the kinds of foods one eats will determine whether one gets enough vitamins and minerals. So, for example, if your diet was cornflakes, the chances are you'd be able to get everything because cornflakes are fortified. They add all the micronutrients to them. If you were to eat simply the corn from the cornflakes, then you might get deficiencies of specific nutrients because there wasn't uh, enough of particular uh, B vitamins, certain B vitamins um, in the corn. And in places in the world where people are consuming diets that are almost totally composed of rice, for example, and there are places where this happens, Bangladesh, but people don't even get enough money to, to buy um, the, the uh, lentils that can complement, in terms of protein, uh, the <coughs> diet that they consume. Then you can get uh, protein deficiencies, but also micronutrient deficiencies, because they are depending totally, almost totally, on one particular food for getting everything they get. So, in thinking about the relationship between food and nutrients, <coughs> Eating to consume enough for satiety usually allows everything else to follow, but it depends on many, many different local factors as to whether um, other kinds of nutrients uh, um, are, are there in plentiful quantity. And there are other issues. I've mentioned iron. 
and I've mentioned uh, a malaria that iron deficiency uh, and malaria, you know, iron deficiency can be protective against malaria, for example. But iron deficiency can cause tiredness in women, so it can be um, uh, 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 problematic in terms of work produ productivity in places where women need to work physically hard. And of course, <clears throat> the biggest design flaw is um, the repeated men uh, 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 menstruation that women experience on a monthly basis. Whoever could have designed a system <coughs> whereby women systematically lose blood on a, regular, on a regular basis. To me, that should not be normal. Um, but, and that has got its own nutritional implications where women are on an iron deficient diet and are losing iron through, through, through menstruation, for example. <coughs> so we have all of those issues. There are also... <coughs> Food is not just food, there are also the fellow travellers in food. There are xanthines, flavonoids, all kinds of <coughs> uh, non-nutrients that are protective against, uh, uh, against a, a whole range of, uh, of diseases. <coughs> then we have to map this onto, onto, onto evolutionary processes. Now, this is a scheme of hominin evolution, which you do not need to commit to memory, but just to commit a couple of things. That when we map diets onto evolution, uh, most of what is happening in hominin evolution is happening in Africa. Until we get to around uh, 1.8, 2 million years ago, when suddenly everything changes. Everything changes because there are migrations out of Africa. So you have a varied ecology within Africa, an ecology that changes with climate change around, you know, um, around two million years ago, then a dispersion across the world, and a change in dietary quality that happens among later Homo and Homo erectus. The emergence, it's been argued, for the consumption of higher quantities of meat. Now, meat is relatively energy dense, and among the hominins, it's been argued that it wasn't specifically muscle meat that was important. It was, it was actually consumption of animal products. The most important animal products were the animal products that were energy dense. So if one of our colleagues in this room here were to run down an antelope. Could be a nice thing to do. It's possible to run down an antelope because Kung Bushmen are able to do that. You just chase them until they fall over. So is there any, are there any marathon runners in the room? Anybody who would admit to ever running a marathon? At least one person has run a marathon. If you can run a marathon, you should be able to chase, chase, down, um, chase down a deer. Run, chase down a deer, then you've got it. Well, you know what? I would go for the muscle. But if I were a hunter-gatherer, I might actually go for the brain tissue. More energy dense. I might even crack the bones to go for the bone marrow. I'd go for the fat in the animal. Which seems counterintuitive now. They don't seem like very nice things to eat. But these were the more energy dense um, components, uh, components of an animal. <coughs> and then what happens in... Homo erectus, later Homo, is uh, the movement out of Africa. So meat consumption is one thing. It's also been argued by Richard Wrangham and his colleagues at Harvard 
um, that maybe meat wasn't so important. It was the emergence of cooking that was important in terms of releasing, making more available dietary energy for human consumption. There are two ways about going about getting food. One is actually procuring a larger quantity. The second is to make that food more digestible. So you can eat raw food and, you know, it has a much more limited digestibility than if you were to cook it. So take a bunch of oats and eat them raw. There's a reasonable digestibility. Cook those oats and you just unlock huge amounts of, huge amounts of dietary energy. So, so there are two approaches. So out of Africa, when thinking about the grand narrative about, um, uh, about human evolution, we start in Africa and then we gradually move out um, into the different regions of the world. And the timings of these are probably not so important for the purposes of, of this particular lecture than the fact that we start to move into different ecologies, different ecological diversity, and therefore different dietary diversity. So you have considerable diversity within Africa itself. Then you start to move to more than northern climes. Other things start to change. I mean, one thing that we notice here, I cycled 10 kilometers this morning at whatever the temperature was, zero degrees. The fields were beautiful. Um, you know, the frost on the ground, the sun poking through the, through, through the mist. Um, it was like a fairy tale, beautiful, really beautiful. The thing is, nothing was growing in the fields. If I were a hunter-gatherer, on a bicycle, no, not on a bicycle, if I were a hunter-gatherer in this country at this time, I would be struggling to find subsistence. So as you push to, the normal, nor, uh, to, more, to more northern climes, you get different kinds of seasonality. All parts of the world experience seasonality of one kind or another. In the tropics, it's most usually rainfall seasonality. As you move to the northern climes, it's, it's, it's temperature seasonality. And of course, that affects productivity of, uh, of uh, all kinds of species. And the productivity of those species determines what can be consumed. So dietary diversity isn't just what you get on a daily basis. It's what you can get in a particular season and how um, you might uh, be able to survive. The only other species that has pulled the same trick as humans are macaques. When you look at a macaque, never think about them in the same way as a <coughs> Never think about them in the same way again. They are the most charming and vicious of monkeys. Um, and they can be pretty well the same uh, thing more or less at the same time. Um, when a macaque is smiling at you, it's not smiling at you. No, he's telling you to go away. He's <laughs> really seriously telling you to go away. I did study macaques at one time when I was in Cambridge, and uh, we, we did a study on the macaque growth spurt, oddly enough. Um, it, it's an imp important piece of research from an evolutionary perspective. It's identifying <coughs> how many species have a pubertal growth spurt. It's not many, actually. Humans have one, macaques have one, chimpanzees have one. But in terms of looking at human life history, to say, well, this is a particularly human thing, 
That's what they said at one time. We've identified pubertal growth spurt and pin it down endocrinologically. We can say, well, it isn't a peculiar human being. Okay, Sulawesi macaques, crab-eating macaques, long-tailed macaques, Japanese macaques, the cutest guys on the planet. They sit in hot springs and they wash their sweet potato. How cute is that? And it's really wonderful. If you ever get the chance to, 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 go, to go and see them in situ, you should. I mean, it's, it really is. It's, it's really marvellous. If you have no other reason to go to Japan, and there are many other reasons to go to Japan, go do that. Go do that one thing. Um, but they consume fruit, flowers, leaves, seeds, bark, invertebrates, and sometimes vertebrates. According to their ecology, they have great dietary diversity. As a particular primate species, they've been able to radiate to different places and be able to pull off very localized tricks in terms of their diet. When we want to think about what humans should be eating, I'm going to come back to this when I talk about hunter-gatherers in a subsequent lecture. Um, there's a great interest in this. Everybody wants to know what they should be eating. You can say, well, you know, if you can afford um, to eat, then you should be able to afford to eat well. And if you can afford to eat well, what does wellness mean? It means all kinds of things to different people. Uh, it's interesting for a number of reasons. Um, there's obsession in some quarters about Stone Age diet, paleo diet, and it reflects our concern with present-day diseases of civilization. But if we want to know what we should eat, how far should we go back in time? The concern about the Stone Age diet places the Garden of Eden in terms of human diets at the Stone Age, that is the Paleolithic, when <coughs> humans were hunter-gatherers and um, were able to, 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 to forage effectively. Uh, but that is only one kind of answer. There are many kinds of answers. One is the Stone Age. One is at the divergence with chimpanzees six million years ago, in which case we could say the baseline human diet, we accept this, is fruit-eating. If we take it back three million years to the hominin divergence, but then we say it's broadly a vegetarian diet with some meat consumption. If we take it back around two million years, then we have the possibility of saying, well, it's only natural to eat meat. Now, you know, in Australia, there have been advertising campaigns by the meat industry that say, eat meat, it's only natural because there have been um, various scientists that have talked about you know, the evolutionary basis for meat-eating. And uh, you know, they've taken good income from the, uh, from the meat industry to say, yes, we endorse the idea of meat-eating as being natural. Now, the thing is, it's all natural. If you want to think about what we should be eating, you have layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of what we can and should be eating. The reality is we are hugely diverse and we're hugely, we're able to consume a huge diversity of things. We are able to eat meat, we're able to eat plants, we're able to eat all kinds of different resources and now we're able to consume printed food if we wish to. Or I haven't consumed any yet. Has anybody consumed any printed food? Nobody. 
<coughs> it's on the way. I, I, I had a, heard a very bizarre presentation on how to, how to print peas um, a few months ago. And, um, and somebody sent me um, a, a link to, uh, uh, to a chocolate printer you can buy for a mere $6,000. So if you want to print your own chocolate palaces and Gothic cathedrals, you can, you can do it. Um, and, and they'll supply you at a price with, with fine Belgian chocolate to do it with as well. So food is, is, is constantly changing. And corporations like Nestle, for example, now have as part of their, as part of their ethos to supply the healthiest food they can possibly supply. That's part of their mission statement. How to achieve it is another matter. <coughs> So when did it all go wrong? When did we move out of the Garden of Eden? Well, first of all, the origins of agriculture, <coughs> when we start to concentrate on consumption of cereals. Secondly, industrialization, when we have to feed huge numbers of people in urban settings and who are not producing food for themselves. And thirdly, with globalization, where food moves across the planet. Now, you know, maybe you can eat snow peas, mange to, any time of year you want to. You can eat strawberries any time of year you want to. But some of those things will have moved huge distances. One of the encouraging trends in bucking seasonality of, of vegetable products in Europe in recent times has been the fact that there are now uh, intensive production of things like tomatoes and capsicums in the UK, in the Netherlands, um, that don't involve quite as many food miles as they used to. So there are trends towards reducing food miles in, in these things. But globalization has meant that food travels across the planet. And while it might seem like there's a bounty of food available, the cost is an energetic one and the cost is a sustainability one. So those things all, 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 need to be, all need to be considered. Then the ambiguities. Which ancestral diets? Mammals, insectivores, primates, apes, hominins, <coughs> all of those, <coughs> all of those are, <coughs> are important. You also say, well, what about the taste for sweetness? Um, humans like sweet things. <coughs> Most primates like sweet things. Horses like sweet things. Ants like sweet things. If we think about the idea of sweetness and the evolution of the taste for sweet things, there's something that is deeply embedded in evolutionary time. It isn't a human thing. There may be additional apparatus added onto um, the evolutionary basis for the desire for sweetness, but there is a very fundamental, deep-seated, very ancient um, evolutionary um, basis for wanting sweet things. Of course, uh, teleologically, sweet things carry energy, so sweetness is a signal for energy, and of course, you know, all animals want to be able to survive, so getting enough energy is how, how the story goes. If we think about trying to unpack all of this, we start off by saying, well, you know, let's just concentrate on the last few million years. A lot of stuff is very basic. Um, sheep like to eat, humans like to eat. And both of them have the, both have the same need to meet um, dietary needs. 
And the satiety signals are pretty much the same, whether you're a sheep or whether you're a human. If we focus on um, something that's maybe a bit more tractable in evolutionary time, let's compare hominoids, gibbons, great apes, you know, um, chimpanzees, orangutan, gorilla, humans. One thing that they have in common is being of a particular size, of having long gestation, of having small litter size, of having particular life histories. And life histories are important in shaping aspects of what one consume, what can consume, how much one can consume, how much should be consumed, and the type of diet that should be consumed. When we look at primate diets, according to the balance of animal matter, leaves, gum, sap, fruits and seeds, then the great apes sit along a continuum between being fruit and seed eaters and leaf and flower and gum eaters. And humans uh, push this out a little bit towards animal matter. It's the really the very small primates, the prosimians, the bush babies, if you will, that consume most animal matter. And most of this animal matter is in the form of insects. They're insect eaters, eating, eating, eating you know, very, very, very small animals. <coughs> so humans are a, 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 a mid-sized animal, but among the primates there's great diversity in the kinds of diets that can be, that be, that can be consumed. A trick that humans pull is consuming a diet that's higher in quality. And the way that evolutionary anthropologists talk about diet quality isn't quite how you might understand it. It's in terms, usually in terms of its energy density, and usually meat is taken as a signal, or animal products are taken as a symbol, signal of dietary quality. The larger an animal is, the lower are its energy requirements per unit of body size. So, um, a mouse, for example, needs to consume a lot relative to its body size on a daily basis just to survive. A human is many times bigger than a mouse and therefore overall needs to consume more food, but per unit of body size needs to consume less. The implications of this are that if you're a larger animal, you actually need to invest less in foraging activity, expending energy in getting food, because you need less food for unit of body size than if you're a tiny animal. You know, a oh God, I fed the guinea pigs this morning. Uh, every morning they're singing to me, squeak, 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 feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. God, they need feeding. They eat feed. They eat. They eat. Uh, mice eat, eat even more. Now, these small animals... Their destiny is to eat, 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 reproduce, and die. Maybe more other things going on as well that I don't understand about a guinea pig, because I don't speak guinea pig. But um, larger species, let's take a chimpanzee, can eat and then can lie down and say, okay, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to groom somebody for the next few hours, and then let's go and get some more feed. The idea of spare time is something that a small species couldn't understand. There's no such thing as spare time in reality. 
all time is used in one way or another. So spare time for a chimpanzee isn't really spare time. It's time you can invest in social relations. What happens to a larger animal, you have the time to be able to invest in that wonderful chatter that I had heard when I came into this room where everybody was talking to somebody. Everybody was, was you know, catching up and finding out and all the rest of it. All that wonderful stuff that just comes naturally. You put a group of people together and that's just what they do. It is one of the most fundamental human characteristics. Chatter, 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 chatter. I don't know what about. It could be about something useless and stupid and simple, whimsical, or something totally fundamental. But it's important. All of it's important. Even what's seemingly unimportant is important because the fact that I talk to one person means I am talking to you and I'm investing my time and energy in talking and listening to you. So those are fundamentally, fundamentally important things. So humans, because they have a high diet quality relative to body size, they also have the luxury of being able to consume things like salad leaves and enjoy them. Things that would be energetically useless. Why should I eat salad leaves when I can get a big tub of lard, for example, I can get so much more energy from a tub of lard. Whereas, I might like eating salad leaves, I might find them pleasant for various reasons. And I can engage in that pleasantness because I have the luxury of being able to eat down the food system. I don't have to be consuming for energy all the time, I can be consuming for a whole range of other things. Size is important in another respect as well. Sweet taste sensitivity increases with primate body size. Bitter, bitter, bitterness doesn't. What this means is that if you're a primate that consumes <coughs> lettuce leaves, like many of us do, then your attraction to lettuce leaves may be that you find actually some element of taste in them that a smaller species wouldn't. You find them tasty. And part of that tastiness, tastiness is identifying, being able to perceive even tiny amounts of sweetness in foods that are you know, seemingly, seemingly unsweet. And those tiny amounts of sweetness engage us and we want to consume them. That's a, something that's been engaged in by the food industry by putting sweetness into places where you wouldn't otherwise find it. So making foods more palatable, even though you can't really conceive of the sweetness in a food, but it's there underlying the, the, the overall taste of a food. <coughs> Bitter, taste for bitterness doesn't scale with body size. So it means that humans can taste sweetness in things that are seemingly unsweet, but can taste bitterness in almost, if it's there, in even tiny quantities relative to, relative to other species. Then, of course, we have to learn to like bitterness once we know a food is safe. And, of course, you know, there's a, a big literature about bitter tasting and, 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 and how people find it attractive. Brain size, we have big brains. 
across the evolution and cephalization, the increasing body size, uh, brain size relative to body size, <coughs> hominin gut size declined. <coughs> so the argument was that as diet quality increased, so as energy density increased, and therefore a large intestine was less useful in terms of, in terms of digesting fibrous foods and so on. <coughs> so this is called the uh, uh, expensive tissue hypothesis by Leslie Aiello. Um, he used to be at University College London. She went on to be the, the president of the Venner Grant Foundation. I don't know if she still is, but that's what she went on to do. Who uh, put, put together an idea <coughs> about how energetic um, <coughs> partitioning in the body favoured increased brain size relative to gut size. Gut is expensive, brain is expensive. And so if there's a shift in diet quality, then over evolutionary time, the expensive gut tissue is something that can get um, selected against um, across evolutionary time. This is just to compare percentage of gut volume of a, 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 number, of different, uh, a number of different species. <coughs> Most of the human, small human gut is small intestine. Um, among, uh, when, when we look at gorillas, orangutan, chim chimpanzee, over half of the gut is colon and not small intestine. Different balance, different diets, and uh, uh, a different job that, is, that the gut is, is, is doing. How did human dietary diversity arise? Humans, hominins, can consume seeds, grasses, fruit, meat, potatoes, underground storage organs. So, we know all this from dental specialization. If we look at the teeth of different hominins across evolutionary time, uh, big molars are adapted for uh, consuming seeds and grass. Having canines, big canines, very useful for tearing and so on. And what human teeth are is some kind of compromise between the two. So we can do a certain amount of tearing if we want to. We can do a certain amount of crunching if we want to. So we have a, a compromised dentition that allows us to be able to range across uh, a, a number of different kinds of uh, different kinds of foods. <clears throat> if everything had been stable, we might never exist. When we look at the environment in the African savanna in the, in, in Africa, um, six million years ago, then. The locations in which human evolution happened were rainforest, montane forest, reasonably stable. Ecosystems that were continuous. And so a home range could extend across huge distances. Now what happens with climate change? As the African um, uh, rainforest started to decline, as rainfall declined, um, then the environments in which hominins lived became much more patchy. And I'm sure you can imagine this. If you've got a, if you've got a huge forest, well, you can wander through that whole forest. If you're a tree-living animal, you can jump from tree to tree. I sometimes fantasize about being able to swing arboreally from branch to branch across the forest. That's what I'd really love to be able to do if I were not an academic. And but if you reduce that extensive forest to just a small area, well, you can swing from branch to branch, you get to the end, uh, swing back again, 
and there it's swing back again, which is all well and good as recreation, but it doesn't earn you a lot of food. If you're dependent on fruit in the trees, then those resources can very quickly get used up. So patchy environments start to create niches for other kinds of possibilities. So the first is coming down from the trees and using legs and moving across the ground, eventually standing up. Also the possibility of different dietary possibilities being on the forest edge. Different diet possibilities being in open woodland. Different diet possibilities in, in grassland. So the idea of dietary diversity is very, very fundamental to, to hominin evolution because the evolution of Homo sapiens ultimately depended on the adaptive responses that the earlier hominins made to a rapidly changing environment. And this is how we are now. We are still hominins in contemporary environments where we are looking for dietary possibilities, where we are responsive to change, where we are responsive to novelty, where we're constantly seeking out new possibilities with food. This is how humanity is. If you took the poorest people in Africa with the poorest possible diet and gave them possibility to eat what they want, they would do exactly the same thing. So, <clears throat> the emergence of dietary diversity starts in Africa, then moves across the planet, as with the, the, the macaques that I just described earlier, and led to many, many possibilities. I've mentioned that diversity was limited by seasons, but there are other things that could limit the diversity. It's not completely uh, an open, uh, open set of possibilities. First of all, there's digestibility of foods and the bioavailability of nutrients and potential toxicity. Remember, plants want to live every bit as much as you do. And one way in which plants evolve not to be predated is to have significant amounts of toxins, things that are toxic to other species, which don't necessarily kill another species but can be detected by them so they avoid a particular plant. There's also competition from sympatric species. Imagine yourself as a hominin in the African savanna. You're wandering around at six in the morning, but you're not the only thing that's wandering around at six in the morning looking for food. There might be a lion looking for breakfast. And oddly enough, a lion might think of you as breakfast. So how you forage and how you use the environment is particularly important. One of the things that Peter Wheeler argued about this competition idea was that uh, humans learned to, through their thermoregulatory cap capacities, you know, it's said that humans are a tropical species. On a day like this, most of you would notice that. You really don't want to be 
in Oxford at zero degrees. They're much happier in a room where we're sitting in, you know, subtropical climate, in a subtropical environment in this room at the moment with the temperatures that we have. Um, <clears throat> but our ability to be able to lose heat very easily through sweating, through transpiration, uh, through, through respiration and so on, <clears throat> uh, is useful in that uh, we are able to colonize times of the day. Lions are asleep, humans, hominins could forage. So that's another important, uh, another important issue. It's like cats. You know, cats may share the same local environment, but they actually avoid each other. They can share the same local environment, but be there at different times of day. So it's possible to, 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 uh, to coexist. Okay, there are a whole range of things that reduce digestibility and in a whole range of plants um, there are known to have high levels of digestibility reducers. That is, if you consume them raw, um, they'll give you gut ache and you'll excrete, you don't excrete, do you? Um, uh, you would uh, lose in your feces those, those particular things. Large roots, mature leaves, stems, roots, woody potential foods. All of these things, you know, if you consume um, a potato raw. Has anybody eaten a potato raw? Yeah. Why? Why? Sorry? Why not? Why? Well, of course, of course, the... the the, the, the human tendency to, to explore and seek adventure. Um, <laughs> uh, and what happened? Did anything happen? Not really. Sorry? It wasn't very nice. It wasn't very nice. It wasn't very easy. And if you'd have eaten more than one potato, uh, you would have probably had stomach cramps. So, yeah. No, I, I sympathise. I sympathise. It's the sort of thing I would have done when I was younger if I'd have been intelligent enough to think of it. Thank you. Uh, it's because they contain digestibility reducers. Broad soybeans contain huge amounts of trypsin inhibitors, digestibility uh, uh, reducers. There are also many foods contain toxins, which, eat, if eaten raw, also create problems. So the biggest problem is stomach cramp and potential diarrhea. Those are the things. Eat the wrong things. The things you learn very quickly. Eat that. That's what's going to happen, so you don't eat it again. So that's one of the things that limits. You can't just eat anything. You can only eat food that agrees with you. In terms of seasonality, um, this is from Rob Foley's book um, way back when, but it's still valid. And what it shows you, if you get to look at it on the, on the slides that are, that are on WebLearn, just work your way through it and just look at how it, how it focuses. Um, so at the very center, um, during the wet season, this is when um, animals have offspring. So there's capture of herbivore young, scavenging of eggs and fledglings young animals. Um, when the wet season carries on, there's a concentration of fruits, flowers, young leaves, and so on, delightful. And then we go across the year from herbivore young, it comes to large herbivore concentrations. Um, as things dry up in places, there's an amazing place called Hatter. Um, in Australia, Hatter Lakes, um, which is um, northern Victoria. And I was there once, so before I got married, I 
with my to-be wife, where the temperature was 42 degrees and <coughs> Hatter Lakes were just drying out. And hey, we got to Hatter Lakes and camped there and then we saw all these pelicans. What would pelicans be doing? They were actually just having a feast because the fish in the ponds were dying and they were coming up to the surface and they were just eating this rotting fish and having a great time. Now, can you imagine if you were, a, if you were an Australian hunter-gatherer and you were at Hatter Lakes and the ponds were drying, you just sit there and say, hey, breakfast, here's another fish, you know. The fish can't escape. You can gather them very easily. So, so looking at the changes in the climate, in the environment, in the very local circumstances, uh, changes, uh, you know, influences how you, how you would exploit that environment. Hunter-gatherers are very tuned to, 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 to the environment. I did a talk on foraging, um, uh, foraging in Oxfordshire a few years ago. Um, to the uh, Café Scientifique in Blackwells. And <coughs> the talk was about how do you find out where do you find, where, where do you find food. For example, if you know what a plum tree looks like when it's in blossom, you would then say, ah, blossoming plum trees. So you're already ready for what's going to come next. So hunter-gatherers don't just say, ah, here's food. They say, ah, that's on the way, that's on the way, that's on the way. So it's reading, reading the environment. So seasonality. Competition from sympatric species, I've already mentioned. Um, hyenas, lions, everything is out there trying to make a living and in competition with each other. Okay, brain size is important. So I've mentioned body size. Um, the importance of brain in eating, I'm going to come back to in a later lecture. This is to show that when we get to Homo sapiens, brain size is significantly bigger than Homo erectus. And the history of um, hominin evolution has been one of, of progressive, not steady, not progressive, but exponential, I think, increase in, in brain size. Now, the most basic feeding reward system is the dopamine reward system. Um, which is a, a very simple mechanism that all mammals have. It's one of the ones that are used in response to sweetness. Humans, however, have a neocortex. We've got a big, complex brain. We've got machinery we still don't know how to use properly. It's an astonishing system that we still only partially understand. Gordon Shepard um, wrote a book called Neurogastronomy, which is worth a look. It's quite easy to read. It's, it's, it's a popular book. Um, he's at Yale. He's a neuro, neurophysiologist. Um, he comes to Oxford from time to time as well. If he ever comes, I'll make sure we have a talk from him. Um, and this is to illustrate that we have a basic feeding reward mechanism. What humans do is that we recruit <coughs> olfactory sensors, taste sensors, in the sort of the hypothalamic system. But then we also recruit uh, the neocortex in creating meaning around food and creating memory around food. You know, you can all think of your most perfect food. And 
I'll posit that the most perfect food was something that your mother cooked for you regularly as you were a child. And I'm trying to, trying to program my children to like my spaghetti bolognese. Um, this is a very good one. But I've got a particular way of cooking it. And I'm programming them not to like it the way that anybody else likes it. Because when they taste it somewhere else, they say it's not doesn't bring back the memories. You know, you taste a food, you say it brings back the memories. Ah, you know, all those associations. And if there's a slight deviation, it just becomes ordinary spaghetti bolognese. If it's if it's cooked in a particular way, it becomes that particular particular food. So we create all kinds of associations with with foods, and we also create expectations of what a food should be. So we recruit the neocortex. But without a large neocortex, we could not have elaborated cuisines. A chimpanzee could not get a Michelin star because it needs to engage in a whole set of practices that it simply can't do. It needs, doesn't have the neurophysiology for discerning different qualities among foods and appreciating them in an associative manner. It isn't able to engage in a whole set of unskilled practices. Cooking, if you pull it apart, is complex. It involves different technologies. It involves the formalization of practices. Recipes are a formalization of practice. You're not sure how to do something, well, you go to an institution. Jamie Oliver, for example. Let's have a look at how Jamie does it. Okay, I'll follow how Jamie does it. Seems good, then I'm there. Then you find out you haven't got that critical ingredient. So you think, uh, no, ginger will do instead. Because you've got that in your cupboard. So you improvise. Who cooks? Who likes cooking? Who improvises? Yeah. Isn't it one of the greatest things about cooking that you can just say, okay, I'm going to invent something. I'm going to just change this. I'm going to change that. And, and see how it goes. And so you develop your own way of doing it because you've got your own particular practice of, of cooking. It's one of the greatest things about it. Okay, taste. I think I'll flip to the next one very quickly. Which is to say that there's a, so been some genetic work on taste and alleles associated with, with sweet taste sensitivity. That... Um, to cut a um, long story short, and again, the paper's on the reading list, the paper's available, and, uh, and, and the slide is on WebLearn. to say that um, the haplotypes for sweet taste sensitivity um, differ between Africa and other parts of the world. So in Africa, <coughs> um, African populations um, have a higher sweet taste sensitivity than they have in most parts of the world. So it's been proposed that the differences in distribution of high and low sensitivity alleles could reflect the adaptation of populations to their habitat in the past. So the ability to taste sugars in low concentrations was important for human survival in cold geographical regions. So again, not just the fact that you can like a lettuce leaf because it's sugar, you've got some little sugar in it, but like lettuce leaves because you have putatively evolved in a northern clime. So 10,000 years or more of microevolution could have increased your sensitivity. Yes? Why would that be then? Sorry? Why would that be? Um, straightforwardly finding out to find energy 
from, from a, a range of foods. So if you don't find something palatable, you won't treat it as food. So it actually increases the possibility for food diversity. So as you move into winter, less food is available. So you might actually find something palatable as opposed to saying, this is disgusting. If food contains toxin and sugar, so, uh, not toxin, something bitter and sugar, um, then you'll respond to the balance of sugar and bitterness. If the bitterness is too great relative to the sweetness, then you're going to be detracted from eating it. Whereas, and you actually have to learn to like bitter <coughs> things. Um, if something contains a bit more sugar, you're more likely to, uh, a bit more sweetness, you're more likely to accommodate the bitterness in that food. So who likes coffee? Who likes coffee with sugar? Okay, just a few people. So very sophisticated. So, I mean, if you gave, that to, if you gave coffee to a child, they're likely to say, bah. It puts sugar into it, they're more likely to like it, for example. So, so there's that, that element to it. Okay, almost finished. I'm going to just talk about fire for a little bit. Because you can't do that much cooking without fire. The earliest hominid use of fire was detected around 800,000 years ago. And this is archaeological uh, evidence um, in Israel, in China, um, where they found burned wood, flint pieces, bones with cut marks, a variety of grains, burned and unburned bones in the same layer with stone tools. So it's associative, associative evidence to suggest that um, the use of fire in human settlements actually has quite a deep history. Not just the 250,000 years or so ago that they thought even 20 years ago. That, uh, but on the basis of this, Richard Rangham has written about fire, cooking and diet, and this is on the reading list, and argued that if you simply cook fruits, seeds, underground storage organs, uh, then you can release huge amounts of energy to the extent that you don't really need to argue for the consumption of meat um, in, in human diets to, to, to suggest the increased energy capture of human populations. Argument of one against the other is really problematic because you can't, you know, the, the evidence is, 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 largely, is largely circumstantial and, and, and usually indirect. Other than to say, um, whether it was that long ago or whether it was 250,000 years ago, uh, Fire was fundamentally important in shaping uh, human diet, increasing digestibility, but also increasing the possibility of being able to cook and increasing the possibility <coughs> of finding new kinds of food novelty in the, in the ingredients that you have. <coughs> so, what should humans be eating? Well, it could be almost anything you want it to be. Now, if you bring it to the present day, that's why the food industry can get away with almost anything. Um, what should the food industry be able to say is another issue. One issue that is important is sustainability. That however we should live, and whatever we should live, uh, what we should live on, um, should be something that could uh, sustain a population. It's not everybody can eat on organic food, not everybody can live on a Stone Age diet. So the aspiration should be to move to something that um, is good to eat, healthy to eat, and is sustainable. Thank you.